Wonderful, let me welcome you as well. If you're a guest here, you're really, really welcome. Wherever you're from, whatever you're into, Jesus loves you very much. And therefore, we love you too. You're very welcome with us. I'm just going to move this down so it doesn't, doesn't hoot quite so much. Um, please fill in one of our Connect cards. If you want to catch up on uh, the Acts series that we're starting, Ken did an outstanding overview last Sunday. You can listen again on, on uh, SoundCloud or through the, through the website, iTunes, all that kind of stuff. Indeed, we're, we're referencing a lot that it's come out even in our worship time this morning, our 2020 goals uh, if you think, what are they on about? Again, just have a listen again through, from the beginning of January to some of the, the teaching at the start of this, this year. Um, Ken made a really good start, as I've said, in Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. Luke, uh, one of Jesus' uh, disciples, wrote uh, the, the life and times of Jesus in, in his gospel, Luke's gospel. Um, but then uh, Luke carries on with the life and times of the early church, the story after Jesus is raised from the dead and ascends into heaven, uh, the church that continues in the power of the Spirit. We've kind of subtitled this series, Church As It Should Be, um, and uh, the kind of people that we need to be if we're going to be the kind of people that live in the sort of 2020 promises that we believe the Lord's speaking to us uh, about. Uh, when you look in Acts um, and when you look at the kind of people that we want to become uh, more of, we see everything covered in Acts that we're ever going to need to grow in. We see in Acts of the Apostles, we're going to learn about the, the gospel and how to proclaim it, healing, generosity, outrageous generosity, um, a, an amazing freedom in worship, um, a church with an incredible prayer life, um, uh, a church that does community together in an extraordinary way, baptism in water, baptism in the spirit, a church that knows how to suffer, a church that goes through persecution, churches that know how to identify, raise, develop leaders, churches that do outstanding mercy ministries in their towns and cities, even with opposition in their faces, churches with real diversity, churches that know how to identify and work with teams of apostles who know how to identify and train leaders and release them and send them uh, for church planting and for the sake of the cause of the kingdom all over planet Earth. I think there may be some equipping for us in Acts as we go through it together. And I see some of you nodding. Maybe you've spotted it too. We're in the story, church. And uh, we're going to carry on with that story today. Literally over the coming months, we're just going to work through it verse by verse and see what we find there and what we can learn. So I'm going to pick up um, from verse 6 of chapter 1. Uh, it may come up on the screen. If I'm going to read it anyway if it doesn't. Um, so this is the disciples with Jesus who's been raised from the dead. Um, and uh, he's hanging around with them, eating, talking, drinking, all these kinds of things. When they met together, verse 6, they asked him, this is the disciples asking Jesus, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he'd said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. We'll probably leave it there. I don't think we'll have time to go much further this morning. Father, thank you that you're with us. 
Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning, now, even now, seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Uh, would you help us to unpack these verses? Would you speak into our lives? Would you train and equip us in order that we might be the kind of spirit-filled people that we've already been praying about this morning, that go out from this place carrying something of the, the uh, real clarity of, of the message you have for us, but also the joy and the life and the power uh, that you want to pour over ordinary disciples like us. We agree these things together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. That's a bit of a half-hearted amen. amen. There we are. That's good. That's good. Well done. Amen, yeah, there we go. You see? I knew there'd be one. <laughs> All right, calm down. Calm down. <laughs> we are in England. I, I, know I'm going, I, I know you're warming me up for Brazil later this week, but just, you know, steady on now, chap. Uh, there we go. <clears throat> so, um, let's pick it up from, from verse, uh, verses 6 and 7. There's a 40-day period. The disciples didn't know it was going to be 40 days uh, at the time, but a 40-day period after Jesus was raised from the dead. Um, you'll find that at the end of all the gospel stories, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And in that time, he does appear to many disciples in and out of uh, rooms where they're meeting in the city, seen by crowds. He eats with them, he teaches them. And I think he's often exploring the kind of question that the disciples ask him here in verse 6 and verse 7. Are you going to restore the kingdom at this time? What's behind that question is they still have some kind of confusion over what on earth is the kingdom of God? What are you talking about, Jesus? We think this is what it's going to look like. We find all the way through Jesus' teaching in the Gospels that people just consistently misunderstand um, what he's saying uh, about the kingdom of God. They get it completely wrong. They're thinking all the way through the Gospels in terms of, and, and Jesus is even on his team of disciples, on his little squad, he's got some real zealots. Yeah, we're with you, Jesus, because we think you're our best shot at overthrowing the Romans. Take the city by the sword. We're getting our city back. We'll get our territory back that we used to have under King David and King Solomon. That's their understanding. It's a political, uh, military, territorial kind of understanding of the kingdom. We know, reading back into the story, Jesus' own teaching, he's, he's bringing a completely different kind of kingdom. As we used to say up north, it's different gravy. It really is. And uh, it's got you thinking about your Sunday lunches now. It's, it's a different kingdom. Jesus said, I'm bringing the kind of kingdom that means I can pray uh, your, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. It's, it's my kingdom. I'm about to ascend as king and victor. And my rule and reign now is going to spread in the hearts of men and women, ordinary men and women all over planet earth. Completely different kind of kingdom. Actually, their kingdom hope was much too small. I think our kingdom hope generally is much too small. Even looking at our, some of our 2020 goals, in the end, I remember when we've been talking and praying about it with the leaders team, the elders team, Justin said a number of times, hey, 2020 is great, but actually it's about a bigger kingdom picture. He's absolutely right. He's biblical, theological in his insight there. Thank you very much. We, we want to run into some stuff that's going to shape us, but there's a bigger kingdom picture at stake. Let's not be like these disciples in that sense where we just make it uh, about our own expectations. Um, his kingdom plans are much greater than our little agendas. That deserves an amen. I, I th this is the last time we see in the scriptures that the, the disciples think this kind of way um, about the, the, the kingdom in their old way. Their mindset, their whole worldview is about to change. What changes it is the coming of the Holy Spirit. And we're, we're probably a couple of Sundays away from looking at those verses, but I've spoiled the plot for you um, already. Um, from this point on, we find these disciples devoting themselves um, to a, a new purpose, to, to having a, a very 
uh, sharp clarity about what the kingdom really is and about the part that they play in it and everything that they do and all that they are, uh, their sole purpose becomes to move that kingdom forward. Right now, they're in a bit of a muddle. Jesus responds in the way that he does often. You think, well, you haven't really given us an answer there, Jesus, but he's given an even bigger answer than they could imagine. Verse 7, he says, yeah, I'm not quite going to explain it again, chaps, um, but only the Father knows the times and the seasons. Uh, I think Jesus is speaking something there about his, his, his ultimate return. Only the, he, he, Jesus is linking this bigger kingdom with the restoration of all things. These disciples are thinking, hey, our city, kick the Romans out. Jesus is saying, no, there's a, ultimately the kingdom's about everything, the whole planet, the whole cosmos getting restored under the headship of Jesus Christ. And only my heavenly Father knows the times and the dates for that. It's a bigger picture, a bigger ambition. Now, however, Jesus is going to teach them this is an age of the Spirit. It's an age until I return, until the, all things are restored, where we have an ambition that is far greater than just restoring Israel. It's about the whole planet. And so in verse 8, Jesus begins to unpack, hey, this is what the restoration of the kingdom really looks like. Um, he says, uh, so they're saying, will you restore the kingdom? He says, well, um, don't know what the Father's dates are that he's set by his authority, but here's, here's what you need to hear. Here's what is really the response you need to the question you didn't know you'd asked. It's that kind of response, really. Uh, and if, if English isn't your first language, I'm really sorry about that sentence. Um, if it is, I'm sorry about that sentence. <laughs> um, I'm murdering the English language. Jesus' response in verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is what restoration of the kingdom truly looks like. Jesus is saying, never mind all that stuff that you've had in your heads that makes you angry politically. Never mind that. Um, yeah, that stuff's important, but it's time to be witnesses to me and about me. That's where uh, this kingdom is going to begin to spread and grow. That's where for us, so much, getting this, this point alone is where so much of the change will come in our lives. I've just been staggered again this week. I, I realised, oh, I knew it before, I'd forgotten about it. The, the word um, that Acts is, was written, recorded in the Greek language uh, originally, and the word witness that Jesus uses is the same word, the same root, martus, where we get the word martyr from. Martyr is a word that we use in the English language to, from that Greek root to describe people who give up their lives for a cause, give up their lives uh, primarily. The first martyrs were Christian martyrs. It's the same root with the word. I don't know about you, it makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable. Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses, you'll be my martyrs to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. That, that just ups the terms a little bit. I'd have hidden that in the small print, but he uses the word in his commissioning to them. The kingdom's going to advance, Jesus says, with servants who are prepared to lay down their lives in the way that, that, I, that I've done, Jesus says. And most of these disciples that are around him at this time, they literally did lay down their lives for the cause of Christ. They literally did die for following Jesus. They became, nearly all of them became, as it were, seeds that went into the ground, but multiplied. It's happened all the way down through church history as men and women have lived selflessly for Christ. Still happening in parts of the world uh, today. It's the same spirit of sacrifice, church, we're called to live with. Uh, even if we live in an era here in, in the West, in the UK, of, of relative comfort right now, 
Um, it hasn't always been that way for believers. It isn't always that way for believers right now. It may not always be that way for us as believers. Uh, and so we're called to lay down our lives for the cause of Christ. I don't think that's any different to what we signed up to when we first became followers of Jesus, where we said, Jesus, I'm turning away from my life. I'm giving myself fully and completely to you. Actually, that's the package we signed up for. Jesus is just reminding us, having started that way, by the way, get filled with my spirit and carry on laying down your life for my cause. There are all kinds of ways we... You've gone very quiet now. Um, All kinds of ways we lay down our lives and bear witness to Jesus. We see them all in in Acts. Um, We're called to be truly costly, sacrificial in our worship of Jesus, not just singing songs a bit louder, but, but real whole life worship. We're called to be sacrificial in our love for one another, sacrificial in our care for the poor. We're to lay down our lives with generosity to one another and those outside. If you're married, your, your call is to be truly to lay down your life to your husband or your wife. If you're single... It's a sacrificial call to live with purity in singleness. In our friendships, we're called to lay down our lives for one another. This is what bearing witness for Jesus in the world looks like. But actually, and let's not miss this, otherwise we'd be a bit more comfortable for us, bearing witness also means we open our mouths and we use some words about Jesus so people know what we believe and who we believe. The world might admire you for your amazing generosity, Uh, They might admire you for the way you bring up your kids. They might admire you for the way you just live a single life with such such purpose. Um, They may hate you for the way you live. But if they don't know why or what or who, then then we've missed something. The gospel ultimately must communicate words about Jesus for it to be effective to save any of us. Again, that's how we all started. In the end, we may have observed stuff in people's lives, but it was when we heard, when it was told us, when it was explained, this is what Jesus does, that everything begins to change. Romans 10, Paul's writing to the church in Rome later on, uh, 10, 13, 14, he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Hey, that's a great promise. We pray that, we believe that. The next verse, but how can they hear without someone preaching? How do they know unless we tell them? How will it ever happen unless we open our mouths? And so Jesus says, hey, you're going to receive power to be my witnesses. Yeah, in the way you live your lives, you demonstrate the kingdom, attitudes, relationships, all that stuff, really, really important. Jesus said it's by your love for one another that the world will know him. That's absolutely true, but it requires us with the Spirit's help to open our mouths and to put some words to what we believe as well. So this year in Acts, I'm really excited. We're going to learn the gospel in Acts. There are some amazing gospel proclamations that we'll read about that we'll get to study. We'll learn to love the gospel again. We'll learn to share it again. We'll learn to pray the gospel. Hopefully we'll learn to demonstrate it as well. We'll learn how this new community in Acts shared the gospel, spoke the gospel. Perhaps we'll learn again with fresh confidence and with the Spirit's help to speak it out in our own testimony um, into different cultures in your home, gently, quietly in your workplace, out in the streets, hey, even in a tweet, who knows how we may learn to communicate the gospel. In Acts, we learn what words, what content goes into the good news about Jesus. We learn what we can put in and what we can't afford to leave out. My prayer is that we go through the same kind of change as these disciples, that we move from that that kind of confused question about the kingdom in verse 6 to on a couple of pages to chapter 2 where by the Spirit's power these confused disciples have become bold proclaimers of a very clear gospel to the crowds. I've been loving, I I think I I 
quoted some of this in our week of, of prayer and fasting of, of, uh, a couple of weeks uh, back. This, uh, you've got to read yourself some old missionary biographies. And uh, it's, a, it's a great old book uh, about James uh, Fraser, who was a, a missionary in, uh, in southwest China. Um, and uh, here he is. He's, he's shipped up in China. He's living. Um, he's the only missionary for 150 miles, the only white guy uh, around. He doesn't know the language. He's just working hard every day, praying and trying to learn the language. Within nine months, he was preaching in the local Chinese dialect, uh, but working very hard to prepare his messages um, uh, so that he could. He was very serious about communicating clearly and not bringing confusion with the gospel. I love this. It just caught my heart as I've been praying for our Acts series. He says uh, in his old English, this was at the turn of the last century, in, praying, in, in preparing my address, I first went through the Acts of the Apostles, comparing them with a view to finding out the actual gospel we are bidden to preach. The result was instructive to me, as it will be to us. I had never imagined the gospel was so simple. I know many of you here are saying, Steve, we love this, but I won't be able to preach the gospel. I, I can't do it. It's, I, I won't know what to say. I'll never manage it. It's too complicated. No, no. I, he, Fraser says, I'd never imagined the gospel was so simple. Why, Peter and Paul both preached the gospel in words, in acts, which would not take one minute for us to say. And I found out that there are just four things which seem to be essential in preaching the gospel. I'm not sure I agree fully on his list, but it's a good place to start. One, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. No theological explanation needed. Number two, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The most important of all, the gospel was never preached without this being brought in. Number three, exhortation to hearers to repent, to turn away from their sins. And number four, a promise to all who believe on Jesus Christ that they will receive remission of sins, a cleansing, a forgiveness of their sins. Beyond these four points, others are mentioned occasionally, but they are not many. In teaching Christians, it's quite another matter. To them, we are to declare the whole counsel of God as far as they can receive it, but the gospel as preached to the unsaved is as simple as it could be. I should not care to take the responsibility of preaching another gospel. It's just a great book. If you can get hold of any of the biographies of, of Fraser, they're well worth reading. Friends, this is the change we're going to go through as we discover are you, right now, why don't you just tell yourself, I'm going, to learn to, I'm going to learn to share the gospel. Why don't you just say that? Especially if you said, I can never do this. Go on, no one else is listening. It's just between you and God and the rest of us. So Jesus says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, verse 8. And you'll be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. It's by his power. Thank goodness we don't have to do it on our own. We're going to receive something, someone to help us. Power is a person. It's coming to us as a gift from this ascended Jesus, uh, from the Holy Spirit. John 12, 32, Jesus says, speaking of himself, when the Son of Man, that's the title he used to speak about himself sometimes, when the Son of Man is lifted up, he'll draw, he'll attract all men and women to himself. Jesus was speaking there about his death on the cross, being lifted up on the cross, but also it speaks of his ascension, being lifted up into heaven from where the Holy Spirit comes. It's the Holy Spirit that enables this drawing of all people to Jesus Christ. I love the way Paul writes to the church in Philippi where he, he tells them um, that Jesus has been exalted to the highest place above every name um, so that, it says, God has exalted Jesus, lifted him up, ascended him into heaven so that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This 
This powerful ascension moment that we're looking at today comes with a gift of the Holy Spirit being poured out so that men and women may be drawn to Jesus. So that as Jesus is exalted and the Spirit's given, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. You'll receive power, Jesus says. Again, we've often commented on this word as we're in these kinds of passages. The Greek word is dunamis, power. Um, we would use in English still the word dynamo. You get a sense of real power. Um, it's the same power, the same word that's used elsewhere to describe the power that raised Jesus from the dead. That kind of power, disciples, Jesus says, you're going to receive. That power that got me out the grave, that power that rolled away the stone, yeah, that power, that power that you think I, I'd be dead if it touched me, that power is coming upon you so that you can be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit's coming on us. He's going to change us. He's dousing us, was that phrase Mark used this morning. Uh, there are many wonderful things that the Holy Spirit does when we receive him. Many wonderful benefits that come. Beautiful fruit that grows in our lives. And we need all of that. Um, but I wonder whether in, in the UK church those things have all taken first place when the primary reason for receiving the Holy Spirit is that we might be those who bear witness to Jesus Christ. I think that's got a bit hidden and lost. We're baptised in the Spirit, church, so we might witness to Jesus. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. Ken had a beautiful PowerPoint last week. I don't have one that shows this, but if you wanted a neat division of how Acts breaks down, you pretty much get it there. Uh, the disciples bearing witness to Jesus in Jerusalem is pretty much Acts 1 to 7. Uh, disciples bearing witness to Jesus in Samaria, the kind of surrounding uh, area, um, Acts 8 to 12. And then the, the ends of the earth and beyond, uh, Acts 13 <laughs> onwards to the end. I was just praying this, uh, this Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth bit through this week and, and really thanking God. It just dawned on me that, wow, I've had the privilege of paying, playing a small part in this promise. And as I was thinking about the church, I thought, wow, you guys have too. You've had your, the privilege of playing a part in this promise. There's too many P's in that sentence. I was just reflecting on where I've had the joy of either witnessing about Jesus or even leading people to Jesus or seeing people healed in the name of Jesus. Uh, there have been neighbours in the towns we've lived in, all over England. I've had the privilege of leading people to Jesus in England, Scotland, Wales. Um, seen people born again in France and healed there. Led people to Jesus and seen them healed in the name of Jesus in Holland. All over Italy, we've had the thrill of leading people to Jesus. All over Romania. When I was a young man in Germany, I led people to Jesus. It was amazing. What an adventure that was. We've had the joy of, of seeing Jesus move in that way as we've proclaimed him in Zambia. Last time we were in Brazil, we saw the same stuff. By the grace of God, we will again this time. When I was a very young man, I had the, the thrill of preaching about Jesus in Singapore and Malaysia, of all places. Oh, I preached so badly, but maybe Jesus used it. And then I was thinking, oh man, even when we'd been on holiday, I remember one time we were at a Red Sea resort in, uh, in Egypt and uh, I just got chatting with a guy who ran a gift shop and I was able to share the gospel with him. I've no idea what happened, but I think, oh, thank you God for that seed. I remember again in Turkey in an all-inclusive resort, chatting with one of the waiters and able to say something about Jesus and to pray for him and his family who lived back home right on the, other, on the Syria side of, of Turkey. Thank you, Jesus, for those seeds. 
I remember being on holiday in Dubai and just praying, oh God, I can't do anything here, but I'm going to pray while I'm here that you do something. I remember being away for a romantic break in Stockholm with Kaz and we prayed around Stockholm saying, God, would you build New Testament churches here? We believe we've put some seeds in the ground. Even as I'm just reading this passage, I think, church, will you just be ready for your summer holidays this year? Will you be praying already? Will you get yourselves a copy of the old Operation World or look it up online and find some things you can pray for and go full of the Holy Spirit, ready to be witnesses to Jesus? wherever he sends you. I think it's a strategic part of who we're called to be uh, as a church that wants to send out, that is placed by an international airport to the ends of our streets. Yeah, absolutely, but to the ends of the earth as well. I love the old song we sometimes sing, sing still. Um, uh, thank you, oh my, thank you, oh my Father, for giving us your Son and leaving your Spirit till... The work on earth is done. What a beautiful song that is. And the reality is, and the reason why we still sing an old song like that, is that the work on earth has not yet been done. Jesus has not yet come back. The ends of the earth have not yet been reached with the gospel. But our ordinary lives, he wants to empower with the Holy Spirit. He invites us to take part in the story. Briefly, I'm getting carried away all over the world. Let's go to verse 9. This is extraordinary. As they're talking to him, as, he's, as he said this, he's taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their, their sight. There's a, a physical, bodily ascension. I mean, it's crazy. It'd be like me talking to you now and beginning to levitate up and go through the roof. And you think, that was a crazy Sunday morning. <laughs> you wouldn't remember much else, but you would remember that these clouds which carry him upwards, clouds in the scriptures always signify the, the very manifest presence of God. You may recall some of you, perhaps, the story earlier, even before Jesus went to the cross, where he was up on the mountain uh, and he was transfigured just for a moment um, in a place of worship and devotion in his prayer. He, he took on the glory that was his before he came to earth and the glory that will one day be his after, the, after his death and resurrection. And, and three of his disciples saw him. It says he, it was like he was wrapped in shining, bright clouds. Um, or you, it, may be, it makes me think of the very old stories right back in the beginning uh, in, in uh, Genesis and Exodus where it speaks about the Shekinah glory, the, the, the heavy weight of the clouds of glory that came upon God's people on Moses' tent of meeting or the cloud that led God's people through the desert. And you still hear these stories now. I love the, the old stories of Azusa Street, the, 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 the revival at birth, the kind of pet spread of Pentecostalism around the world, the turn of the last century. There's a beautiful old book called They Told Me Their Stories. Um, that was um, uh, in the 70s, 80s, older people who were kids at the time of the revival shared their stories with a journalist and he wrote this book and some of them speak about the, as they were kids in, in these meetings in this uh, really poor uh, neighbourhood in Los Angeles and, and they said the presence of God came down so heavy there was a, a literal cloud in the meeting place and these kids said we used to just play in the mist and make shapes with it while, while people are getting healed and saved and transformed by the power of God. These clouds are a sign of the manifest presence. They're a taste of greater things to come. Jesus goes up in the clouds. Where did he go to is a fair question to ask at this point. I, I think one of the reasons why the disciples stood looking 
open-mouthed, staring intently into the skies, perhaps for those who'd been with Jesus at his transfiguration, thought, oh, he's going to appear again in a minute. He's done this before. He went all bright and shiny a while ago. It's okay, he'll come back in a minute. Um, But he didn't this time. Now he's gone. We believe the scriptures teach us he's gone to what I guess we call the present heaven. There is a physical man, just like us. Uh, We are made in his image, who is in heaven now. Paul writes to the Ephesians church later, Ephesians 1, 21, he's speaking about the power of God that's at work in us. But he says, and it helps us, that power is like the working of God's mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and then seated him at his right hand, that's the ascension, in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and above every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but in the age to come. That passage speaks about where Jesus is and who he is as well. He's ascended now to the right hand of God. He's finished his work on earth for now. It's completed, it's finished, Jesus said on the cross. From that place of ascension, where Jesus has now been glorified, he's poured out his Holy Spirit onto his church, just as he as he's promised. He's in the present heaven now. It's the place we will go to be with him if we die before Jesus returns. He is coming back for the new heaven on earth. If we read on, we find verse 10 and 11. These angels, uh, why are you looking up into the sky? These two men dressed in white, verse 11, men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand there looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. Uh, There's something more happening here. I think these two angels, my view is that they're the same two angels that they're on some kind of work experience assignment to earth, I think. They've been given these jobs to talk to daft disciples who don't know what's going on. Um, and it seems that they, uh, their role is to ask sarcastic questions just to draw out the stupidity in us. Uh, I think they're the same two angels that appeared at the tomb 40 days earlier, in the garden tomb to the women, where they said these two men, I think Luke 24, four, two men who appeared in clothes that gleamed like lightning. I think it's the same two, two men, the same two angels. And they said to the women at the tomb, why are you looking for the living among the dead? <laughs> huh? Didn't you know the story? And here they are again. Why are you staring up into the sky? Don't you know the same way he's gone is the way he's, he's coming back? It seems to be their assignment to ask the blindingly obvious questions. But the point that we get from this is that he is coming back. He's returning in the same way. A physical Jesus is going to return bodily to a physical planet Earth. What a hope we have, church, in the return of Jesus Christ. So just for five minutes before we pray together and finish... Let me try and summarise from these verses that we've worked through today and and, and perhaps just give you three big reasons why the ascension is important at the start of Acts and why it's important for our lives and our stories. These are summaries of points we've already pulled out from these verses. Number one, the ascended Jesus puts us into the story. He writes us into his story. That's an amazing point. This is more than just a hero story. Hero Jesus, hero early church Wow, aren't they amazing? We could never do that. No, no, the ascension means that you and I get to participate uh, in these stories. There are two amazing statements that Jesus makes before he goes to the cross. John records them in his gospel, John uh, 14 and John 12. Both these statements begin with Jesus saying, I tell you the truth. When he says that, we need to listen very carefully. Not because at other times he's not telling the truth, but when he says, I tell you the truth, he's emphasizing a very important point for us to listen to. So may we listen carefully right now at this moment, church. 
And John 16, verse 7, I think is like a bit of a commentary on the first two chapters of Acts. You read Acts 1 and 2 and think, what on earth is going on there? Hey, turn back to John 16 and verse 7. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. It's for your good that I'm going away to his disciples. Unless I go away, the counsel of the Holy Spirit will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. When he comes, he'll convict the world of guilt in regard to sin because men do not believe me. John 14, 12, I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I've been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. So I think just before Christmas, I looked at John 14, 12. Anyone, everyone, greater things, empowered by the Spirit. It's better that Jesus goes, he says, because as the Spirit is sent, we, his disciples, his church in our generation, will get to participate in a greater proclamation of the gospel, a greater spread. Jesus never left um, the, the, the geographical boundaries of Israel. He crossed over into Samaria. We get to go all over planet Earth. We get greater miracles, greater number of them, greater acts of love, greater acts of mercy, greater generosity. Jesus says that because he's gone and because he's sent the Spirit, we get to participate in this greater work that we've been written into. We get to be the ones that carry this mission of Jesus and the first disciples in Acts forward to an even greater, even wider conclusion than they managed in their generation. And that change and that trigger is completely and exclusively because of the ascension of Jesus Christ and the outpouring, the dousing of the Holy Spirit upon us. Wow, this work of drawing men to Jesus involves you and me. We are participants, not observers. Just nudge the person next to you and say, you're a participant. Yeah, you are. You are, Jude. Malcolm's telling you. You're not an observer. You're a participant. Wow. The ascended Jesus empowering us. Secondly, why is this big news for the disciples in Acts and for us as well? The ascended Jesus gives us hope that's rooted in his authority and in his victory. Jesus uh, has all power. He has all authority. He's seated now at the right hand of God in heaven. He's not shaken by the ups and downs of our lives, by the things even that make us rightly anxious and afraid today. Jesus isn't shaken by those. He knows the end from the beginning. He, he is our hope. He has hope for us. Uh, Peter, in his letter, 1 Peter, says there's, there's um, uh, got to get it in my head now, otherwise I get it wrong. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new hope, uh, new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, which will never perish, spoil, or fade, but is being kept in heaven for you. Right now, it's being, we're being shielded by God's power, and this hope is being kept in heaven. Part of what Jesus is doing now, at the right hand of God in heaven, is shielding you and holding on to an indestructible hope for you and me, that whatever goes on in life, we can still be flooded by his comfort and his hope. The big prize, Justin's absolutely right, is not ticking off some 20, 20 goals, but the big prize is a true kingdom hope that is resilient in us because Jesus Christ is in heaven and because ultimately every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and ultimately we'll get to be with him in the new heaven uh, on the new restored earth. That's real hope and that means that there's hope in the meantime because the ascended Jesus is on his throne, because he's in control, whatever happens, whatever we face, whatever needs we have, we have one who we can approach, the throne of grace. So it's Hebrews, isn't it? We can approach the throne of grace 
in our time of need for grace and mercy. We've got hope of help. We've got help, hope of victory. Whatever you're struggling with right now, there's probably some areas of sin in your life and mine. You think, I'm never, am I ever going to change? Am I ever going to have power? Hey, there's hope of victory because there's a man in heaven who's beaten sin and, and death. Wow. This hope is opened up for us by the resurrection of Jesus, by the ascension of Jesus, by the giving of his spirit. There's a man in heaven. He's our pioneer. He's the first to go through. The Bible says he's the firstborn from among the dead. That means the rest of us who are in Christ are going to go through as well. We're going to follow our pioneer and our champion. We have a, it means we have a home in heaven. It means there's hope for today that whatever we're going through, however tough it may be, one day we're going home. That's a beautiful hope and the world needs to hear that hope. And finally, I just need an amen for me as well. Wonderful. Finally, the ascended Jesus gives us hope of his return. We kind of were flowing into that anyway, I think, because I got carried away. The return of Jesus is the missing part of our gospel. He died for our sins, raised to life by the power of God, he's ascended into heaven, and he's coming back. So last summer, we did the We Believe. We preached through the creeds, didn't we, last summer? One of the lines we said, we believe, is we believe he will come again in his glory to judge the living and the dead. Church, let's live like we believe that he's coming back. I'm here to say that to you and to me today. Let's live with the hope of a new home in the restored heaven on earth. Let's live with that hope. That means we want to spread this news about Jesus with urgency today. Yeah, we don't know the times or the dates. Only the Father in heaven knows those. We don't know the hour that he's coming back. So let's live with an urgency to proclaim this good news about Jesus with as many as we can, and this hope that we have with as many as we can now. I, I think there are many the people that maybe live in your street, your home, your workplace, that are effectively like these confused disciples, good people, but effectively looking up into the sky and wondering, what is it all about? How is it all really, what is the point really? Let's tell them of our hope. Let's be like the two gleaming men that say, hey, this Jesus, let me tell you about him. The Holy Spirit's our helper in that. He gives us an urgency. He gives us power. I love the way the big story of the Bible finishes in Revelation where it says the spirit and the bride say, come Lord Jesus. The Holy Spirit and the bride, the church being described there, together longing for the return of Jesus Christ. Longing for the final victory as we look at our broken lives, broken world around us. We're groaning. The Holy Spirit's groaning. The church is groaning. We're praying and working urgently for all of creation to be brought back in alignment with these amazing promises because Jesus has ascended and poured out his spirit. Oh, hallelujah. We need the ascension because we need an ascended Jesus to have poured out his spirit on us. He's done that so that you and I can take our part in carrying his victory and his purposes to the ends of the earth before he returns. We haven't done that yet. This is church as it should be in Acts. It's who we're to become. That today is just Acts 6, Acts 1, verses 6 to 12, just six verses. Church, are you ready for this? Should we stand? Let's pray together.